As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, let us look at possibly your book of the year. My book of the year, for the first time ever, I did it so early in the year on the shock of the war and Vladimir Putin and what we saw. Uh, Putin's World is my book of the year. But look at this short, readable, mega threads, mega threats, Noel Rabini, crisis economics coming out of the crisis. And now this shockingly readable. Norio Rabini joins us for the entire half hour. I'm going to go back. I want to give people a little vignette of years in my relationship. We're sitting at a wood-paneled Davos-like bar, and there's a very famous Secretary of Treasury sitting somewhat near us, and you and I walked through the excesses of 05, 06, and you nailed 2008. Are we there again? Yes, we're here again, but in addition to the economic, monetary, and financial risks, and there are new ones. Mm -hmm. Now we're going towards stagflation, like we've never seen <clears throat> since the 70s. In the book, I point out that there are also geopolitical risks, like we're on a confrontation with some revisionist powers like China, Russia, Iran, or Korea that are challenging the geopolitical order mm -hmm. of the U.S. and the West, and that's going to lead potentially to conflict. There are environmental risks that are very severe. There are health risks coming from pandemics, and there is a relation between global climate change right. and pandemics. There are technological risks coming from AI, machine learning, robotic automation, destruction of jobs. There's a backlash against globalization, and we're gonna go to a world that is deglobalized. There are political risks. We have polarization, and we have radical extremist party of the extreme right and extreme left coming to power, both in advanced economies and in emerging markets. And on top of it, we have amount of the debt like we've never seen before, explicit debt well, that's and implicit go. as that's well. That's right where I want to so go. So it's a confluence of all these mega threats, Lipsky, 10 of them together. Lipsky at IMF yeah. was heated about the debt buildup. On the yeah. back of your book, you've got a guy named Rogoff from Harvard, Bremer of Eurasia, Dr. Alarian from Cambridge, Martin Wolf, always wonderful at the FT. And at the very top, the quote of the season from Taleb, the gravity's return to the physics. We've got a higher real yield now. We've got a risk-free rate now. What are the ramifications in our economic system that the gravity's return to our physics? Well, there were many insolvent agents in the economy because uh, private and public debt as a share of GDP has gone from 200% to 350 globally between 2000 and today. In advanced economies, more like 420 and rising. In the U.S., is now higher than after the Great Depression and after World War II, and we're not out of a Great Depression or a major war. And until now, even if you had zombie households, corporates, banks, shadow banks, governments, countries, 
they were built out. They were built out during the global financial crisis, zero policy rates, negative quantities, credit easing, and even during the COVID crisis, many of them were fragile. They were built out again. We went back to, to do even more of the same. This time around, instead, is different because we have so much debt and central banks like the Fed have to increase interest rates to fight inflation. So the zombie institutions are going to go bankrupt. That's why not only we're going to have inflation and stagflation, but we'll have a stagflationary debt crisis. In the 70s, we had negative supply shock, 73, 79, but we had very low debt ratios. So we didn't have a debt crisis in advanced economies. We had one in Latin America, Argentina, Mexico, Brazil borrowed too much in the 70s. When Volcker jacked up interest rates to 20%, they went bankrupt. After the GFC, we had the debt problem, mortgage debt, housing debt, bank debt, and we had the debt crisis, but it was a negative aggregate demand shock, and therefore we had low inflation and deflation. Today, we have the worst of the 70s with a massive amount of stagflationary negative supply shock. In the book, I identify 11 new ones over the medium term. And at the same time, we have debt ratio like we have never seen before. So we get stagflationary debt crisis. Well, don't give us the 11 themes, John, or we'll be here all day. <laughs> I was waiting for the 11 before I jumped in. You used this phrase in there. I could no, tell yeah. you in, this, in the I'm soundbite sh- about sure 11. Could, but I'm not going to give you time. <laughs> you said zombie institutions. Yeah. Where are they? And are you talking about countries now? and not companies, not households, not private balance sheets. Are you talking about countries, sovereigns? Uh, well, there are plenty of sovereigns that are in trouble. Uh, in emerging market, we know what has happened in Lebanon, what has happened in Zambia, what has happened in Sri Lanka. And there is about 40 of them that the IMF and the World Bank said that they're on the verge of having a debt crisis, severe debt crisis because of what's happening. And look what happened to the United Kingdom that now has started to be priced in like an emerging market with the fiscal stimulus reckless, forcing the Bank of England essentially to monetize it, and then the currency falling and rates going much higher until they reverse themselves. So it has happened in Greece, it's happening in the UK, it could happen in Italy. Of course, we have a large number of not only emerging markets that are at risk, but also of advanced economies that are at risk. So over the last 10 years, we've had a series of counter-cyclical circuit breakers. Yes. Fiscal had the capacity to do that. Yeah. Central banks had the capacity to do that. Yeah. Seemingly, we're questioning the capacity of those institutions, central banks, sovereigns to be able to do so this time around. You offer solutions in this book too. What are they? Well, for every one of these mega threats, there is a solution. But then there are two final chapters, one about a dystopian future where all these threats materialize, they feed on each other, and it's not just the end of the world economy, it could be even global war. And there is a less dystopian future in Chapter 12 where we have the policies nationally and internationally that lead us to a better outcome. The problem is there are both domestic political constraints and geopolitical political constraints to achieving the best solution. And I'll give you an example of global climate change. Domestically, in this country, half of the country doesn't believe into it. Two, there is a conflict between generations. The young people care about the future, the elderly care less. At the international level, there is a free rider problem. If a country cuts emission to zero, nobody else does it, then they don't get benefit and only the cost. And now because of geopolitics, we're telling India and China, you should cut your emission now to zero in the next 20 years. But we created a problem in the last 200 years. 90% of the stock of emission came from advanced economies. And now we're telling them, don't grow, don't become rich, because there is a problem. It's true, the flow of new emissions coming mostly from China and India. So there are four elements of conflict, two domestic and two international, that they, they essentially imply that we're not going to find the right solution. So there's lots of greenwashing, green wishing, green fig leaves, lots of ESG is just talk and no action. Glasgow COP was just a total failure and or a slow motion train wreck.
Which goes to your point, John, about electric vehicles that 9, are Hummers, pound EVs. 9,000 pound EVs in the United States because they are green. There is an issue, though, going forward with the central banks and whether a lot of your thesis, Nouriel, is predicated on their inability to go through with what they need to do to get inflation down. Is that your base case? Is that the most likely outcome? Yeah. Right now, all central banks are playing tough and talking tough and acting tough, hawkish, because they have a problem of credibility. But in my view, there are two problems. One problem is that they, if they try to get to 2% inflation, they cause a recession. And this recession is not going to be short and shallow. It's not going to be garden variety. It's not going to be plain vanilla. It's not going to be two quarters of negative growth, and then inflation collapses, and they can ease again. In the book, I explain all the reasons why it's going to be a severe recession because of the debt ratio, because we're going into fiscal and monetary tightening. And at the same time, not only you have an economic crash, you're going to have also a fiscal crash. We're not only in fiscal dominance in this game of chicken between Treasury and Central Bank, we're in what the folks at the Bank of International Settlement call a debt trap. There is so much private and public debt that if central banks try to fight inflation, they cause a crash of financial markets and not just the stock market. That's the least important. Credit market, bond markets, and that crash and financial crash feeds on the economic crash and vice versa. And therefore, they're going to wimp out and they're going to blink. And the first one was the Bank of England. The Fed is going to do the same. The ECB is going to do the same. Have you been surprised that we haven't seen some sort of catalyst, some sort of financial stress <laughs> so far, given how quickly, quickly the Fed has already hiked rates? Well, we have not yet seen it. Some people worry that some major financial institution not in the U.S. may go bust. I think that the financial strains are going to become more severe because right now the Fed is on the way to go from 3 towards 5%. You already have a stock market down 25%, NASDAQ even more, public REITs 33%. You have the crash of MIMI of SPAC bubble, of the crypto bubble, private equity, venture capital, growth. Everything is down. Credit is down. Leverage loan market is shutting down. CLO market is shutting down. And the only thing that used to be safe, there were government bonds. Now the price is correlated positively with equities. Because when inflation is rising, you lose money on your equity side, you lose money on your bond side. Yields have gone from one to four. And the price action downward on bond has been worse than in equities, 30% losses. So any 60-40, 70-30 or disparity portfolio lost money on both hands. There yeah. was nowhere to hide. Even cash gave you a negative real return because of inflation. There you're are other alternatives that can protect you against this tail risk, but they're not the traditional ones. You're a man of high conviction. We know that. You've also got some very smart friends. Have you had any pushback to this book that's convinced you of absolutely anything, made you rethink how bad things might be and possibly made you think that possibly they could turn out better than you think? Uh, honestly, everyone who has read it at any level has said that the threats you're talking about, they're all too real. Of course, there may be solution to them, and I discuss them chapter by chapter and in the final chapter about the less dystopian future. But think of it this way. I have gray hair. I, I grew up in the 60s, 70s in, in, uh, in Italy. At that time, did I ever hear about climate change? There was sure. never a concept. Did I worry about the nuclear war after the detente between Soviet Union and U.S.? There was nothing. Did I worry about AI destroying most jobs? We're in the AI winter. We had the stable democracy. We didn't have pandemics. Last time around was 1918. We had low debt ratios. We had low implicit debt because there was no aging of population and all that funded liabilities. There were no major financial or economic crises. This is a quantum shift. There was a period in 1945 and the mid-80s that was something of a stable period global prosperity, welfare, peace, and so on. 
Today, these are threats that did not exist. And those threats are more similar to the period between 1918 and 1945, when we had World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, trade war, financial crisis, inflation, hyperinflation, deflation, Nazis, fascists in Germany and Italy, Spain and, and Japan, and we had World War II, and then we had the Holocaust, and then we had the Korean War. Yeah. As, as Neil Ferguson on Bloomberg is saying right now, in his column this week, he says, we'll be lucky if we repeat the 1970s, because it's more possible we end up like in the 1940s, meaning he's talking about World War Three. I love Neil, but can we be clear? That wasn't a column. That was a book on Bloomberg Opinion. Wasn't it? Have you read that? You see that <laughs> yeah, it's a long yeah, column. Yeah. Right. Can you tell Neil that uh, columns are short? I love his books. column can because, you, you know, he's speaking, about, he's speaking about the fact that there's a meaningful chance that we have conflict between, and I write it about yeah. in my own book, there's a chapter about the new Cold War between US and this revisionist power. And I say it could end up into a hot war. It's a significant risk. I want to go to the past. And I was so pleased that you mentioned on page 37 your colleague, Alberto Alessina. I still can't believe we lost him at such a young age. You two looked at the politics of our economic system, Rubini and Albert, Alberto Alessina. I want to bring it forward to where we are now, which is a massive dollar shortage and central banks. They've got a plan, but they're going to be overrun by a global dollar shortage in EM and, frankly, in developing economies as well. Is there a dollar shortage now, and is that the catalyst for central banks to blink? Uh, it's going to be one of the catalysts. There is a dollar shortage, and the raise in interest in the United States is particularly dramatic for EM. They have a terms of trade shock, those that are importing commodities. They have a rise in interest rates because of what the Fed does and they have their own domestic inflation. And then the weakening of the currency that increases the real value in local currency of their own debt. So for them, it is a perfect storm. Some of them have a lot of reserves. Some of them don't have reserves. Some of them receive IMF money. But there is right now a strengthening of the dollar that is implying even further tightening of financial conditions in the rest of the world. Now, I think that eventually the dollar is going to have to fall very sharply because we have a twin fiscal and current account deficits. In other advanced economies, you have a fiscal deficit, but you have a current account surplus. And now we're essentially using the dollar as a tool of national security and foreign policy. We're weaponizing it, rightly so. Sanctions against Russia, against Iran, North Korea, China. We're starting, by the way, a the tech war with China, economic war. This, what will be the sanctions about for dollar weakness? How do we get there? Forget about this plaza. Uh, it's going is, is, to be essentially the Fed wimping out. Once you see a severe recession. What does wimping out mean? That means blinking, right? Yeah, blinking. They're going to blink and wimp out because you'll have a severe recession. Wimp out. That's have a, a new you have economic a term. It's, it's, a, it's a mega threat to <laughs> <Yeah>. wimp out. <laughs> Well, either you're a hawk or you're a wimp and so, or a dove in this case. Uh, but that's going to happen. And once the Fed is going to essentially prevent an economic and financial crisis or try to prevent it by essentially stop raising rates, even inflation is too high, then the dollar is going to start sharply weaken. That's going to be the trigger for it. Because what's raising the dollar is, of course, the tight monetary policy. A viewer wrote in and wants to know what you're doing with your money, considering that it seems pretty bleak out there. Yeah. You know, do you just stuff it into a mattress? No, you don't stuff it in the mattress because uh, then even cash loses money because of inflation. There are three solutions to the problems of inflation, the basement of fiat currency, political and geopolitical risk, and environmental risk. Solution number one is to have very, very short-term treasuries that adjust in, in rates and don't have the price action of long bonds that have a 
fall in their price. Secondly, you want to be into tips, even if tips right now have not yet done well because inflation expectations are not yet de-anchored. I think you want to go into gold and precious metal. Again, gold has not done very well because you had tight monetary policy, strong dollar, but if central banks are going to blink and wimp out, gold is going to rise in value. Gold is going to rise in value also because the enemies of the US are subject to sanctions. China now is worried. They have a trillion dollar of reserves in dollar. They have to move to other things. If it's euro and yen, they can be seized. The only thing that cannot be seized is gold. Of course, not in the vault in New York or London, but in Beijing or in Moscow and so on. And finally, appropriate types of real estate that are environmentally resilient, because real estate compared to equities in a recession does well, because you have more pricing power for rents and so on. So a combination of these assets provide you in an optimized way a hedge against some of these risks. On the flip side, you've always been brilliant on leverage in the system, on credit. And we've heard from one fund manager after another that there is resilience in this corporate credit sector, even with the debt that they have, even with the low coupons that they're currently paying that will reset higher. Do you disagree? Do you think that people are overly sanguine about the upcoming credit cycle? They are. Right before the COVID crisis, the Fed was writing reports on financial stability, pointing out the leverage of the corporate sector. Of course, high yield and fallen angels. But then during COVID, these folks should have gone bust, but they were bailed out. We bought even high yield debt, you remember, commercial paper and everybody under the sun. So the zombies were bailed out. And the excesses of having leveraged loans, CLOs, Covlite got even worse and people got even more indebted. This time around, the party's over because the Fed for now will have to raise rates. Those debt service ratios are going to become impossible. And you get the double whammy for those corporates. You get a PL because income is going to right. fall because of the recession. And you get a debt problem with debt servicing ratio rising. And therefore, there'll be a corporate debt crisis, one we avoided during the GFC and during the COVID crisis. Right. It's no, coming no. now. The CLO and leverage loan market are shutting down right now. I want to get to Chapter 12, where you yeah. talk about a more optimistic future, yeah. utopian future. You started by quoting the economist Yogi Berra. I thought that was very good. You go right in there <laughs> about predictions and Yogi in the future and yeah. all that. How do you get from Yogi Berra to a more optimistic future? Well, the more optimistic future starts with essentially technological innovations. Like, for example, I don't think it's going to be renewable, maybe fusion. If fusion happens, then you can have unlimited amount of essentially energy at cheap cost with no greenhouse gas emissions. We look like we are, however, only 15 to 20 years away from fusion becoming a reality. If it comes faster, then we can increase the economic pie. We're going to reduce the cost of energy. We're going to stop greenhouse gas emissions. We can grow more what about our fractured political? What about our fractured political system, whether it's your Italy and the turn there to the right or what we see in the election here coming up in two weeks? How do we get beyond this fractured political system? Uh, for now, we're going towards a world that is even more divided domestically. There's more polarization. There's lack of partisanship. Mm-hmm. And it's happening. I mean, you have authoritarian regimes in power. You have Putin in Russia. You have Erdogan in Turkey. You have Kaczynski in Poland. You have Orban in Hungary. You have Meloni in Italy. You have these Nazi Swedish Democrats now in Sweden. You had the Brexit phenomenon, you had the Trump phenomenon. And in Latin America, it used to be only Venezuela, Argentina, populist of the left. But in the last two years, well, Chile, Ecuador, <clears throat> Peru, Colombia, we and gotta, Brazil we is going to be either populist of the sold, right or the left. Ten seconds. Bolsonaro, Lula. Sold, That's if, the world we're going. Unfortunately, no. it's a world that is not liberal democracy. Have you sold the movie rights yet? No, not okay. yet. DiCaprio, he'll love playing Rubini. Nor Rubini where this. The book is Mega Threats. Oh, 
Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We get lucky this morning. John Bavan around the table with us, the head of the BlackRock Investment Institute, and formerly so much more than that. John, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. I read the weekly note from the BlackRock Investment Institute that came out just yesterday, and you talked about the significance of the midterms. And you guys don't think they're that significant for future returns over the next several months. Why? First of all, it's so great to be here. Um, no, we think the usual playbook for the, the midterm is that, you know, if you have divide gov- divided government or houses, um, it tends to be a boost for markets. But uh, as anything else, this time around, the usual playbooks don't apply, we think. Um, the main story is about the foretold recession that we're going to have, uh, we believe, uh, in, in the current of the next year. And as a result, uh, we think that um, this is the second sideshow, um, the, uh, the important for the future of the country and everything. But in terms of markets, we don't think that's an important driver. Swap lines front and center, major discussion at the meetings in Washington here a week or so ago. Give us BlackRock's estimate of how countries will have to go to the Fed given a global dollar shortage, the illiquidities that are out there is seen in FRA OIS. Yeah, um, you know, the important thing is uh, here we, we're seeing like the most rapid tightening of financial condition in a, in a generation, uh, in a very long time. Uh, we haven't seen really the cracks yet uh, appear mm-hmm. in the system. Uh, it's remarkable to see all the, all the strengthening of the U.S. dollar you've seen uh, without like the knock-on effect or cracks. We would have seen in other circumstances. I think that creates a level of anxiety that was really clear at the IMF. A lot of conversations about how we shore up the system in that context. Swap line will be a, will be a key uh, key tool uh, potentially in that environment. But I think so far what is really surprising is that um, you know it's been very stable despite uh, despite what would not from your been. academics at Princeton and in, in your work with the Bank of Canada. If we believe it's nonlinear as we disinflate. Do you think we can succeed at that with stability or are there going to be instabilities? Witness with Damien Sassauer yesterday, we looked at a Columbia piece going from 98 down to 63 on a price of bond. That's a crack. I think it's very hard to see something that's going to be smooth lending in any way. Uh, that's true for the economy. That's true for the financial market in this context. That's why, you know, we think we're in a clear part towards over tightening of monetary policy. But it's going to be very rocky. Uh, we are on the way to equities, uh, you know, as, as bearish as we've ever been, I guess, in terms of broad risk taking at this moment. Uh, at some point, that's going to change. But the reason is really because um, that tightening is, um, is it could be nonlinear, as you say. And um, we haven't seen really crack. I think the UK we've seen over the last month is like an accelerated peak in the future. Uh, and I think that's, um, that's what we need to guard against. Jean, if you believe in a hard landing, why not buy treasuries here? 
Huh, that's a that's a great question, and that's another aspect of the current environment we where the playbook, the typical playbook, might not be applying. We don't think it's going to apply. Uh, we are uh, going to see a recession, but it's going to be a recession in the context where inflation is going to won't be under control. And it's a foretold recession. It's really the recession caused by monetary policy, really. That's the way by which inflation will get under control. And as a result, when we get to that recession, you won't see the typical reaction of yields falling uh, and bonds playing their safety role. So uh, the typical playbook of go find refuge in bonds in this recession, I think, won't apply. Is this part of the reason why perhaps the stability that you talked about, the surprising resilience of markets, is almost a headwind to them because it won't necessarily stop the rising rate environment? It won't necessarily necessarily change where we are in a wholesale value. How high can yields go and stay for a prolonged period of time before something breaks in the financial system? So in our estimates, like if we go to 5%, as now we kind of assume for early next year, uh, this is a world where we're going to see a very significant slowdown of activity, decline activity. So that's 2%, uh, we think, as a, as a minimum of uh, GDP. It's 3 million jobs that would need to be lost in that context. So in a world where 5% is sustained. Um, and I think in a world like this, uh, the financial system, leveraged as it is, as it is will start to see some uh, some response, and and that's the um, so five percent is um, is where we're heading. We don't think we can go much further than that. That's why at, over the course of the first half of next year, we're going to see central banks having forced into some stopping pause um, before they can go further. John, you said recession foretold. I'm interested by that phrase. You've also talked about the appropriate time horizon. <clears throat> to bring inflation back to target. And I think you've explained, conveyed your disappointment that central banks aren't having that discussion a whole lot more. Does it have to be this way? I think what is very interesting, and uh, yeah, and we, we've written about this, is the fact that um, you know there's there used to be two sides to any decision in central banking. Like it's not typically obvious what you have to do, um, and I think this environment is as tricky as it has ever been. I mean, I don't think there's been any so sharp trade-off that we had to deal with. Um, you know, we have to go back to the 70s, and the 70s was a different situation altogether. Um, there's a tendency to apply the, apply the playbook of the 70s but we're not in the 70s. And so this lack of uh, two-sided debate on what's going to happen or nuance is is troubling. And um, that's why we think that we are going to get over-tightening. Um, that's not necessarily the outcome that had to be, but I think it's happening. Um, at some point, I think the the pressure, the forces will be pretty, pretty strong. And we've seen that in the UK, right? I mean, we've seen the accelerated version. You go in one direction, um, markets will put some pressure, and I think we'll see some forced pause. That's not great for credibility. I think it's better for central banks to be on the front foot. And, um, you know, I've signaled that there are some nuances here we might need to deal with. Um, but this is not the situation mm-hmm. we're in. So I think we're going to be forced into, um, you know, a wake-up call, mm-hmm. and, um, and we'll look like um, a pause, but one that has been forced as opposed to being planned. Quickly here, and I could go for an hour with you on this, there was a guy named Bernanke who emailed you when you were a kid and said, do you want to try for a PhD at Princeton? You talked about it the day he won the Nobel Prize. What did he and Anna Schwartz and Milton Friedman do so we didn't repeat a depression? Well, I think the key lesson of uh, the Great Depression that uh, Anna Schwartz and Friedman at first, like uh, more from an anecdotal perspective or documenting the Depression uh, was, and that Ben Bernanke and others have have more formalized, was that um, if you tighten monetary policy as the economy is, uh, is, uh, is 
going down, uh, you create this uh, financial accelerator dynamic by the through the banking system. Is that what we're doing right now? <laughs> and with uh, and with bank runs, um, and I think that was very much in his mind when uh, 2000 came. I thought it was interesting in the speech he gave in 2002 in the anniversary of Friedman that he said, um, "We heard you. We won't do it again." Uh, that was. Um, that was referring to the depression. He thought he was abusing his status at the time, uh, but uh, not his future status. Uh, he was the, he was uh, he was a governor, but became chairman afterwards. The the thing though is at this time I don't think this is the playbook. This is not the playbook for the current situation. This is not a demand-driven financial crisis, uh, bank run story. This is a massive supply shock that we're dealing through. Um, not sure that those lessons apply right now. So that was for 2008, not necessarily for 2020 and after. Jean Bavan of BlackRock, Jean, fantastic to have you with us in the studio. If you were a student of the Midwest and you had parents that were industrial, on your college list was the West Point of Manufacturing and Engineering. It was called General Motors Institute, now Kettering. And never did they know that one of their students would come out to provide leadership for General Motors. She is Mari Barra, and Matt Miller brings us to her today, the engineer from the General Motors Institute. I'm looking forward to it. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it on such a busy day for you. Let me pick up where these guys left off and ask you about the stronger dollar. Obviously, the lion's share of your revenue comes uh, here in the U.S., but you still buy, purchase a lot of parts in your supply chain from outside of the country. Is the stronger dollar a tailwind for you? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of pressures right now when you look at commodity costs, uh, transportation. It's just one of the elements in, uh, that we're facing uh, is not as significant for as uh, it is for other companies just based on our strong uh, position in North America. But uh, we continue to, to monitor and be impacted by each of these factors. Rates, obviously, a huge factor as well. We've seen it um, impacting other lenders, and I'm wondering how it's impacting GM Financial. Well, we, we are seeing uh, GM Financial uh, get back to, I would say, historically strong performance. I think we had a especially strong performance uh, last year and the year prior due to the strength of used cars pricing that's coming down with interest rates. We are seeing a little softening on leasing. But overall, uh, GMF is performing very well. You know, the CEOs of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs both uh, this morning have said they see a recession as likely for the U.S. I'm wondering your view. You have a unique position. Um, what's the economy look like to you? How, how is it unfolding and car sales specifically? Well, I'm going to let calling a recession to the economists, uh, not uh, not my uh uh, expertise, but what I'll, I'll tell you what I we are seeing, and we're seeing still very strong demand for our products. We're seeing uh, strong uh, av uh, average transaction pricing uh, that we we continue to uh, be able to build on, and so you know we are starting to see inventory build just a little bit, but well below levels that were in the past. So overall, we're still seeing a very strong consumer for our products, and uh, you know we're watching carefully uh, all the different signs, but right now it's still very strong. But what about inflation and the pressure on margins? I mean, um, does the stronger dollar balance that out? Are you seeing a, a big inflation and in, in, uh, a rise in the costs that you need to pay out for um, parts? And is that sort of squeezing your margins here? 
Well, we have, yes, we, we have seen, you know, commodities, logistics, uh, you know, we work with our suppliers to make sure that we have a very healthy supplier base. Uh, so all of those factors, uh, we tend to work to offset. And, you know, we predicted this year it'd be about a 5,000, or excuse me, $5 billion impact. And we are seeing that, but we have worked effectively to find offsets. And, and that's, you know, part of our overall uh equation for this year, which is allowing us to still maintain guidance. One big boost um, is going to be the Inflation Reduction Act. At least UBS says they see the IRA as very generous. They say it has the potential to make the U.S. a global EV battery hub. How do you see the Inflation Reduction Act for GM? Well, General Motors was already investing uh, in North America or in the United States. For instance, you know, we have a battery plant in Ohio that's ramping right now. We have two others, uh, one in Michigan, one in Tennessee that are also ramping. So we were making the investments because we wanted to make sure we had a resilient supply chain after we've lived through so much uh, disruption over the last few years. So as uh, the IRA came into, uh, was passed, and we're looking now for Treasury to set the rules, we think we're very, very well positioned. And we do believe that uh, the benefits of IRA, our IRA will drive stronger EV adoption with the American consumer. So we think it's going to do exactly what was intended to do. And we're well positioned to uh, benefit and, and, and work with our consumers to make sure they have an EV that's affordable, uh, that they can uh, really enjoy the benefits of an EV. Are you still on track to sell a million EVs in 2025 and beyond? Uh, we absolutely are. You know, when you look at the lineup that we have, you know, starting with the Hummer to the Lyric to now the, the Chevy Silverado EV, we just last week uh, launched the GMC Sierra EV along with the Chevrolet uh, Blazer EV and the Equinox EV. I think we're going to be well positioned covering the important segments in the portfolio to reach that million unit level by 2025. You do get uh, a huge boost also from big truck margins, and I imagine that helps you. Um, to fund the EV business and, and, and get towards that target. If we have a recession and you see uh, sales of those big trucks, those big ICE trucks drop, can you continue to fund the EV boost? Uh, we very much believe we're, we have a strong enough balance sheet and the strength of the business. When you look at the truck, we have truck leadership. We've had it since 2020, and uh, we just uh, did a major refresh to our light-duty uh, full-size trucks. We have strong uh, SUVs as well, and now the heavy duties we just revealed they'll be next year. So we think our product portfolio is going to position us well in the truck market. We, I would also say mid-size crossovers uh, are very strong as well. And the truck consumer, especially the full-size truck consumer, they generally are not, they don't shop as many segments as maybe other customers of other segments do. So we think we're well-positioned and obviously we'll moderate uh, based on what happens from an economy and a, and a consumer buying perspective. You know, earlier this year, uh, people were asking if we were going to get back to a 17 million SAR. Um, now I'm hearing people ask if we're going to go down to a 12 million SAR. What do you expect for car sales next year? Well, we, um, you know, because of all of the economic uh, conditions around the globe, you know, we are looking and we're planning for a more modest level. Uh, we're still going to protect for the upside because we don't know uh, next year. But, you know, 
we're at uh, really depressed levels right now because of all the semiconductor shortages and other supply chain issues. So we think uh, there's an opportunity to go up ever so slightly next year, but we're going to be very conservative as we plan for next year, but be ready to, to take uh, advantage if there is upside. And there's still a lot of unknowns. We'll provide more information on how we view 2023 uh, and early next year. All right, Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Real pleasure talking to you on Earnings Day. General Motors Chief Executive Officer, Mary Barra. Matt Miller, just awesome, as always. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We're going to catch up with Jordan Rochester now, the G10FX strategist over at Nomura. And Jordan, I teased it a little bit earlier, a few minutes ago. Let's go there. I saw the number 160 and dollar yen next to it in your note. Walk us through it. Well, that wasn't my view, John. That was the view from clients. So it was this time last week on Monday, I was sat next to you guys in that table. So we, we met clients around the New York area and Connecticut as well. And we're looking for 155 at Nomura in dollar yen. I think after this Bank of Japan intervention, what you've clearly seen over the past, let's say, 12 hours is extreme lack of volatility now. We're in a 40 pip range where the previous two weeks we've been on a, a big vol higher in terms of that march up to nearly 152, then that near six yen swing down on that intervention on Friday, done during New York hours when liquidity was very thin right. and just after that Wall Street Journal article talking about the Fed becoming perhaps a bit more dovish in terms of when they will slow down rate hikes. So I think we've had some temporary setbacks for that long dollar, tra uh, dollar yen trade, but the fundamentals are still pretty clear, John, that the US interest rates are rising, the Japanese are not. That is your long dollar, uh, dollar yen carry trade. But for me, on the fundamental side from the trade side, the dollar yen is likely to keep rising from Japanese importers this winter, going out and buying LNG, buying coal, buying oil. Even though energy prices are cooling down, seasonally as we get into winter, those purchases right. of LNG should accelerate, pushing dolly and higher towards 155. Jordan, I've had the honor of a formal tea at the Bank of Japan with all the pomp and circumstance. It's different than the Fed folks. At the Fed, you're over at Starbucks and you're paying for it. That's how they do it in America. Jordan, give us an insight on the debate at the Bank of Japan, is it Kuroda-san only, or is there actually a debate there like there is at BOE or at Fed? There's definitely a debate. Kuroda uh, is, of course, uh, representing uh, the rest of the Bank of Japan when he speaks on their behalf. But he is also the guy in charge. And when we get to March and April, the question for clients is, Kuroda's co uh, term comes to an end, who will be the next uh, to lead the Bank of Japan? And will that lead to policy change? And if you look at rates markets, rates markets would tell you, yes, we think that something will change, at least on the 10-year part of the curve. Will the bands be wider on the yield curve control? Will they give it up altogether on the 10-year? 
yen move it to the five. If you look at the, the Japanese JGB curve, even tenors below 10 years are trading above the sort of uh, levels set by the 10-year yield curve control. So the markets are challenging the Bank of Japan as we speak. They're holding on to their 10-year, their, their uh, but the rest of the curve is pricing a change in policy to come. And is the message uh, so far for this year, Jordan, that currency vigilantes will win, that we're seeing that when it comes perhaps eventually to Japan, although it hasn't happened yet, and then it will, it has come already to Great Britain, where you see a little bit more upside, at least versus where you used to with the pound? Indeed. Well, for the yen, it used to be everyone's risk-off hedge of choice. Uh, the only clients I've met who are long the yen are using it in their portfolio as their potential risk-off in case we get dollar weakness. And as you've seen over this past year, that just hasn't worked. The fundamentals really did change uh, for the yen uh, compared to the global financial crash. The carry trade still drives the pair. It does track U.S. yields quite well. But on the trade side, now of a trade deficit, it's not your risk-off currency of choice when this is a risk-off driven by energy prices. And then for the UK, I think the UK is the canary in the coal mine for everybody around the world, for the, even for the US, for Janet Yellen, for the Fed. You don't want to do a UK, seems to be the conclusion from talking to foreign policymakers. When it comes to budgetary constraints, don't push it. And also when it comes to interest rates, don't suddenly get dovish and allow inflation to run hot. I know we were just talking about the previous section, used car prices. Is I think they will continue to fall, perhaps quite aggressively. But labour markets are really tight. And the risk now is the second round effects for services. And that's a lot harder to tame that inflation dragon. So I think for the time being, the Fed's going to do 75. Then they'll do 75 again, then slow down in, into the new year. That Wall Street Journal talking about the idea of perhaps slowing down to 50s come December. That's the debate for the dollar right now. That's why euro and cable have become quite boring to trade, just that everyone's waiting for this Fed meeting next week. Yeah. I think the message will be, no, we're going ahead, we're still staying hawkish, and the dollar will rally into Christmas. And then waiting for the CPI print the week after that. Jordan, awesome to catch up, buddy, as always. Jordan Rochester there of Nomura. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.